I'm Sharon Blackie, and I'd like to welcome you to the Hedge School podcast. We're dedicated to conversations about building a new folk culture, one which is deeply rooted in our native knowledge and traditions. The Hedge School was born from my belief that the personal, social, and environmental problems we're facing today have arisen not just as a result of our profound disconnection from the beautiful, animate world around us, but from a lack of rootedness in our ancestral traditions. So our work is about reclaiming ancient wisdom, not to try to recreate a long-lost past, but to use that wisdom to help us build authentic traditions for today. In our series of podcasts, we'll be offering you conversations with people who can sprinkle a few breadcrumbs to help us find our way back home through this dark forest of our forgetting. The wisdom contained in myth and folk tales, connecting with our places, reclaiming our indigenous roots, the practice of traditional crafts and old ways of knowing, and so much more. If all this resonates with you, do come and join the discussion in our online communities. You can find out all you need to know at www.thehedgeschool.org. This is Sharon Blackie, and I'm here with the writer Manda Scott. Manda's website, which is mandascott.co.uk, tells us that she grew up near Glasgow, that she qualified as a vet, and also that she taught veterinary science, I think that was, in Cambridge and in Dublin. Um, but she began her career as a writer with a series of crime novels, the first of which was shortlisted for the Orange Prize. But she then moved on to write a series of four books, which are really a kind of cult set of books, I would say, about Boudicca depicting her perspective on how we were before the Romans came and that series of books which is probably what we're going to focus on and the the ideas that came from that today has been translated into 20 languages which is remarkable. Since then she's written another four books about Rome and her latest book Into the Fire is a dual timeline historical novel about Joan of Arc which I've read and it's all very fine. But as well as being a writer, Manda is a teacher of what she calls shamanic dreaming, which is a form of contemporary shamanic practice. So I'm going to start there and ask her to tell us a little bit about what she means by shamanic dreaming. Thank you. First of all, Sharon, thank you for inviting me onto the podcast. So shamanic dreaming, shamanic practice for me is predicated on the concept that this reality is a very, very tiny part of all possible realities. And that with training, with practice, with clear intent, with discipline, a practitioner can move beyond this reality into the other realities in order to ask for help from whatever inhabits those realities. And dreaming is one way of leaving this reality. Historically, traditional shamanic practice, so shamanic practice or shamanic spirituality for me was the original spirituality of every continent and every culture until we began to take on agriculture we began to use the land instead of live with it we can talk about that more in detail later i think and in in the past shamanic cultures used drugs quite a lot they used what we call plant spirits to guide them into the other realms and i am of the belief that there is nobody in the west who has the discipline the intelligence the grounding and the capacity to use plant spirits to move into the other realities safely, repeatedly, and with value to themselves. I think we use a lot of drugs to spin out and that that's not a useful thing to do. So we need to look at other ways to leave this reality and enter the other realities. And the classic one is to, for the teacher to condition a drum rhythm as a means of traveling. And and, and it, it is said that in some of the shamanic cultures, particularly the Siberian shamanic culture, where the word comes from, the drum was called the shaman's horse. Um, And drumming is very common and it works, but it has its limitations. Part of which is that for a very long time while we journey, there is a tendency for us to think that we are making it up. And that's because we are making it up. Um, And the interesting thing is, what are we making up? And after a while, if we practice, we begin to experience things that don't feel as much like we're making it up. The thing about dreaming when we're asleep is that we're not making it up. But we also don't have quite the same capacity to direct the questions as we do when we're in journey. So what we're aiming for, what I am aiming for with my students, is that we reach a point where our journeys feel like our dreams in that we're not making it up. And our dreams feel like our journeys in that we can 
with profit ask a question and hold that question, hold the intent to know that when we get an answer, it's the answer to that question, provided we're asking the right question, which is a whole separate question in itself. And so dreaming for me is one way to leave this reality. And I define dreaming quite broadly because it's possible to dream while awake. It's, it's a state of mind that is as close to sleep dreaming as we can get while still being awake. I think there's a lot of profit in that, a lot of potential in that space between waking and dreaming. So a lot of what I teach is how to find that space and how to stay in that space with clear intent. Does that make sense? It does make sense. And I'm going to come back to pick up on odd um, bits uh, of what you said. But I I'm, I'm, I'm just wanted to say that from my perspective as a psychologist, um, having spent a lot of time studying dreams from a Jungian perspective, which I always found very unsatisfying because it put the responsibility for the content of the dream entirely on the dreamer, um, mm. as if it was all coming out of our own head. And I suppose my great moment of revelation about dreaming was when I started to look a little bit more into the writings of James Hillman, who is a post-Jungian um, psychologist, father of archetypal psychology who famously said that psyche is not in us, we are in psyche, and began to talk about dreams, images as a separate world, as, as separate living entities with which we may be able to communicate. So what you're talking about, of that dream world having some independent existence, uh, some existence that's independent of us, very much fits in with that line of thinking too. Brilliant. It's good to know it's there in, in other worlds than the shamanic world, because a lot of the Sleep science is very, very hardcore neuropsychology, neurophysiology, neuropharmacology. And um, yeah, there are people who, who would definitely want us to believe that everything in sleep and in dreaming is a product of our own subconscious. And there's entire branches of contemporary shamanic practice where people would claim that what we're doing is mining our own subconscious. And well, this is one of the questions, obviously, that students get to quite quickly. And my belief is, I don't care what, whether we're mining our own subconscious or whether there is a greater reality. If the answers that I get to the intentful, clear and heartfelt questions that I ask are useful to me, and if they enhance my life such that I flourish more greatly, it does not matter whether it was my own unconscious or the greater universe. And one of the things that I've learned, I think, in the process, particularly of writing the Boudicca books and then of teaching, which kind of arose as a result of that, is there are questions that are not my problem. And I think that's really quite a big one. There, there are things which are unknowable and I could waste a lot of my time trying to find the answers or I could simply go with what is. And what is and what matters in shamanic practice for me is, is my life, do I flourish more greatly and does the world around me flourish more greatly and therefore does the greater reality in which we live flourish more greatly because i think that's one of the key features of shamanic spirituality that perhaps and sometimes separates it from other spiritualities is that it's very very grounded in the living world and in this reality it's not an escape from this it's about engaging more deeply with everything that is yeah it's interesting what i think um i think nevertheless until the 20th century came along when psychology locked us up inside our own heads. If you look at these questions from an earlier perspective in earlier ages in many different cultures, most of them had this concept of dreams and images existing outside of us. And so I've written quite extensively about a French philosopher called Henri Corbin, who was a student of old Sufi. Uh, yeah. wisdom and traditions. And he wrote about the Sufi concept of what he called the mundus imaginalis, the imaginal world, which is where these images live, which is where dreams live, for want of a better word, where synchronicities arise. And I've always thought myself of, of the mundus imaginalis, these images, archetypal images, whatever we want to call them, kind of being a bridge between us and and the living world around us because we have lost our way I think to reconnecting in meaningful ways and so a lot of my work has been about using the imagination using the imaginal world using dreams using myth particularly using story precisely as a way to to bridge us back into a deep and meaningful authentic relationship with with the natural world brilliant yes yes absolutely yeah. 
So I wonder if we could just for a minute, we'll come back to, to perhaps some of the content of your teaching, if that's okay, in a little while. But I'm curious to hear a little bit more about how this all began for you. And my understanding from, from reading things that you've said previously and odd bits on your blog is that it started really around the time when you were writing the Boudicca books. Now, I don't know which came first, the chicken or the egg. I don't know whether the Boudicca books led to this idea or whether you had this idea and the Boudicca books kind of arose out of it. So I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about that process. Yeah, for sure. I So I started what we might loosely call shamanic, contemporary shamanic practice training with Leah Rutherford with Eagle's Wing back in the 87, I think, thereabouts. Um, and before that, I had been studying with a druidic group in Edinburgh. We, we used to meet in the caves near Roslyn Chapel, which later became famous thanks to Dan Brown. And, and so I'd been looking for something that connected me to the gods and to the land. And I wasn't finding it in the Druidic work. It may be that the contemporary Druidic Druidry has moved on and that it is there, but it wasn't there in the group that I was working with in Edinburgh. And then I found Carlos Castaneda uh, in the summer after I qualified as a vet and spent the entire summer reading everything that he had written at that, up to that point, which did very strange things to my concept of reality. And then <laughs> shortly after that, I by then I was an intern at Cambridge, surgical intern. I went on Leah Rutherford's one-year course, which was, I think, a weekend once a month, and then a vision quest for five days in the mountains of Wales. And it was completely transformative for me because I was, until then, I wasn't a hardcore left-brain scientist, but I was living amongst hardcore left-brain scientists, and I was I was fairly hardcore. Um, I'd, I'd looked at homeopathy and acupuncture, but that was about as far as, and I'd started meditating. So I was fairly far along the the fringes for them, but compared to where I am now, I was very mainstream. And so from Leo, I learned the very basics of what, what is now called core shamanic practice and of the medicine wheel, which I, I still teach with. And in the years that followed that, I studied with basically anybody who would come to Britain and, and in fact also went to the States a few times to study over there and slowly and gradually realized two things. One, of which was that a lot of the people teaching had no clue at all. And the other was that, that some of them were actively dangerous. None of it was bringing me closer to the gods of the land. It just wasn't doing it. And then I made a commitment in ceremony with one set, particularly strange set of teachers that I was going to write about the Boudican times, because as far as I could tell, that was Boudicca marked the end of the Druidic period, the, or at least the, the, the putting down of the Boudican revolt by the Romans marked the end of the Druidic period in Britain. And that the Druidic period was the apex of our shamanic past. And I was writing by then, and I was smart enough to know that if I went to a publisher and said, I want to write about the late pre-Roman Iron Age, which is still what we call it, which just does terribly bad things to my head, I, I would still be a vet, basically. But if I said I want to write the real story of Boudicca, because nobody has written anything about who she was before the revolt, and that's really what I want to look at. I want to look at who we were before the Romans came, as you said, then I might get somewhere. It took a long time. I don't know, very briefly, because I think it is relevant to how what we're talking about now. I had written three crime, four crime novels, contemporary crime thrillers. I had a publisher uh, one of the major publishers who really wanted me to continue writing crime thrillers. And I was walking along, I, I lived near Newmarket at that point because I had been a, a horse vet in Newmarket. And I had a lurcher, which for those not in the British Isles is a kind of hunting dog. My American publishers uh, later informed me that they thought a lurcher was a kind of homeless man. Leave that aside. So the lurcher caught a hare in the middle of Newmarket Heath and she brought it back to me, which is what she's for. And I had no, I still have no real problem with the hunter and the hunted cycle. I think you know, they each have an Eden's chance. But it, this hare was lactating and, and she was well dead by the time I got her. And so that meant that the young were somewhere in the middle of Newmarket Heath. So the grass was up to my knees and this is a very large area. And hares are sacred, clearly, obviously, we all know that. In, in the spirituality, spiritual path that we follow, hares are sacred. And one of the things that I had learned by this point was that the gods will whisper and then they will speak and then they will shout when they want you to do something. And if it gets to the point where they start shouting, you're really going to regret not having listened when they whisper. And as far as I could tell, this was, this was getting quite a long way beyond a whisper. If not only the hair that came back to me, but all of the young were going to die because I really wasn't listening. 
it was time to listen. And I, I spent all day looking for the young, obviously, because I thought I could rescue them, and I didn't find them. So I went off into Division Quest, which I'm guessing everyone who listens to this podcast knows what it is. So no food, no water, sit in a place that is sacred to me until I hear the answer to a question that is the right question. And the question for me at that point, which is the question that I always ask, so it's a bit of a default, is what do you want of me? And the answer came very quickly and I ignored it because I was arrogant and stupid. But the answer was that I needed to write the, the book or books of the Boudican era. And I, I really didn't want to at that point. I was still working as a vet, so I was writing in the spaces between, and there are not many spaces between when you're a veterinary anaesthetist. And I didn't know anything about Boudicca. I didn't even know how it was spelled properly at that point, um, other than what I'd been taught at school, which was virtually nothing. But in the end, th- there was no other answer coming, and there's a limit to how long you can sit with no food and no water, which is one of the reasons why you do it. And so I made an agreement, which is not something I would encourage my students or anybody else to do. Bargaining with the gods is not a clever, clever move at all. But anyway, my agreement was I will go home and do the research. I had enough money at that point to stay in the part-time work that I was in, probably for another couple of months, and then I was going to have to go back to full-time. So that if in that time I can find enough to write about, then I'll do it. If I can't, then you know, we're going to have this conversation again. And I went home and I phoned a friend, like you do. It was the only historical author that I knew well enough to pick up the phone to at that point. And I said, you know, I, you know what I've written so far. I'm going to write now about Boudicca. And she said two things which were fairly devastating each of them one was you can't your publishers won't let you they're building a brand and you can't break the brand they will ditch you and nobody else will pick you up and anyway you can't write about Boudicca because there isn't enough to write about because if there was I would already have done it so uh, so that was fairly crushing to be honest but but you know you've made I had made an oath under the hazel tree I couldn't change it so I I lived near Cambridge Newmarket is near Cambridge, which has the most amazing copyright library. It's got the archaeology library, the classics library, the every kind of library, the anthropology library. So I just went and immersed myself in the library for the month when I wasn't working. And by the end of it, I had a 23-page synopsis for at least a trilogy. I couldn't believe nobody had done this before. And I went to my publishers and she was completely right. They said, we'll publish it to keep you happy, but history doesn't sell. Um, And they offered me you know, slightly smaller unshelled peanuts than I'd already been paid for the crime novels. And then this is where I think this is where you have to trust the process, because I went to crime writing conference and I was on a platform with three other crime writers and somebody in the audience, bless their little cotton socks wherever, said, so what are you writing next? And my editor was in the audience and we had been having big rows by this point. And purely in order to piss her off, because I am that shallow, I said, I'm writing a series about the Boudicca revolt, but I'm going back to before the Romans came because I want to know who we were before the Romans came. Because if this is who we were, then this is who we could be. And I think there's still room and time for us to shed our kind of Roman shell. And it did indeed piss off my editor enormously. But my agent was there too, and she was very supportive. And three months later, when I was absolutely about to run out of money, I was at another crime conference. And at a different, on a different panel in a different, this was in Manchester. And a woman came up to me and said, I was in the audience at crime scene. I heard what you said. How have you got on? Have you got anything to show me? And miracle of all miracles, I had three chapters and a synopsis by then. And I handed her the three chapters and the synopsis and she bought the entire series. She bought the world rights to the entire series, which then went out to auction. And, and I was able to give up the day job. And, and you know, I had like 48 hours left before I was going to have to start really scrabbling for a full-time job. So that then, the Boudicca books, that that gave me the space to do the research that I needed to do and start writing. The first one came out and I was going around the country saying this is who we were, this is who we could be. And there was a particular place that was a fantastic lesbian, sorry, lesbian literary festival called Libertas that by then was in its third or fourth year. I hadn't grown too big that it was impossible, which is what happened and why it crashed. And on the platform, I said that. There were some people in the audience that I recognised and they came up afterwards and, and people had been saying, how do we do this? How do we do this streaming? And I'd said, it's in the book. My rule for the first book was every part of dreaming in this book I have either done or seen done. There is nothing that doesn't come firsthand. It, obviously, I've done it or seen it in a different context to this because we're not in first century BCE. But 
it's possible. And, and they would say, how do we do it? And I'd go, it's all in the book. That's your manual. And so there were women in the audience and they came up afterwards and I went, you already bought a book. Why are you getting me to sign another one? They said, we're not. We're here because we've read the book. I'd go, oh, good. That's very nice. And we still don't understand. Went, oh, we? But it's all there. And they're going, well, we can't see it. No, of course. So I went home and did a lot of journeying and dreaming and sitting under the tree because I had no intention of teaching at all. I had seen what happened to people who start teaching shamanic practice and it's not a good thing. And in the end, obviously, I started teaching in 2004 and I thought I'd do a couple of courses and people would get bored and that would be it. And this year, my most senior students are coming through the 10th gate. I teach a gated system around the medicine wheel, which as far as I know, I'm the only person in the world who does that, although obviously some of my ex-students might do it now. I sincerely hope not, because the ones who stayed with me are just coming through the 10th gate and are amazing, amazing people. It's taken us since 2004, so that's 14 years, to do the full apprenticeship. And they are now at a point where I would be really happy for them to be teaching, but only, only now. And so that's it. I teach 10 to 12-ish, depends what else I'm doing, courses a year. We're going to move on to my senior students teaching some of the basic courses and me only teaching the advanced courses to give me some more space, really. And that's it. Sorry, I talked for quite a long time. And no, 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 that's, that's exactly right. That's, that's fascinating stuff. What I'm, I, I, I don't know where to begin with my questions. I suppose I'll begin here. You say this is who we were. What led you to that perspective that, that this particular way of dreaming was something that, that happened in the British Isles before the Romans? Um, arrogance, probably. I don't, I mean, the entire process of writing the books was, I, I lived on my own at that point. I was single. I lived in a little cottage on a village outside of Newmarket. I got rid of the television. I got rid of the sound systems. I got rid of everything that would attach me to contemporary reality. And I lit the fire every night. And at that point, my dreaming was fire dreaming. And I sat with the fire and the next day, or, and then the next day I would go out into the forest. I lived relatively near Thetford Forest with by then two lurchers and I would walk through the forest processing what had come from the fire the night before and then I wrote it down and I was very lucky that the editor who had picked me up is Irish and really got the dreaming I think without her it would be very different I think and she understood she also was very good when it, editing is a very as you'll know um, bilateral process so I write she edits I write some more she edits the end result is a, is an amalgam. And she was very, very good at when I sent her stuff going, I understand that this is what came, but nobody is going to understand this. You're going to have to mould it to fit. And she would help me mould it to fit. What arose, arose out of my own dreaming. I have no proof at all. There is no way of having proof of what happened yesterday. There is absolutely no way of having proof of what happened 2,000 years ago. But it works. And my belief is that humanity has not changed that much in the last 2000 years and that if i can connect to the hare to the stag to the oak to the river to the rain to the storm doing this then it's possible that our forebears did culturally i'm on much more certain ground and the way that we lived was communal very different the romans broke our communality to pieces at the point where they imposed the concept of marriage and monogamy and nuclear families and all of the undiluted crap that they dumped on us. And so the way of living, I am very much more sure, is who we were. Interesting. So you're talking there about connecting to hairs and connecting to trees and, and connecting to storms, but you also talk a lot about the gods. And again, quoting from your blog, you say the old gods of this land are still alive. And if you know how to connect to them, they'll listen. So who are the gods to you? What or who are the gods? All right, let me tell you a parable very briefly. I will keep it brief. This is the parable of the giant purple octopus that lives beneath the sea. Are you ready? So imagine that you're, you're a fisher and you live in a little fishing village on the edge of the sea and you go out fishing every day with your friends and you're out with your friends one day and a giant storm arises and your boat is completely destroyed by giant waves and you're left clinging to the, the mast and you're the last one left alive. 
and you are drowning, definitely and about to die. And then the giant purple octopus arises from the deep and rescues you and pushes you on your mast to the shore where you are found by more of your friends who haven't died, obviously, and you're alive. And you're alive, you are absolutely certain, because of the giant purple octopus that lives beneath the sea. So you become an advocate of the giant purple octopus that lives beneath the sea, and you pray to it, and you give thanks to it, and you give fish to it. And every year on the anniversary of your rescue, you sail out, and because of your fervour and because perhaps you're giving fish to the giant purple octopus, you actually become a very good fisher. And so you get quite a lot of your friends who are very keen also on the giant purple octopus. And eventually on the anniversary of your rescuing, you stop just giving fish and you start giving people because, hey, the giant purple octopus is great and keeps you in fish and this is obviously worth supporting. And eventually by the time you've died, the concept of the giant purple octopus and the cult of the giant purple octopus has spread to neighbouring villages and, and way everywhere within your known world, there are people who will worship the giant purple octopus. And they're not only giving it people, they're giving it the best people, but particularly the best people that they don't like. So the best people of their enemies, whoever their enemies happen to be. And the giant purple octopus gets bigger and stronger and its followers become bigger and stronger. And in the end, they split. And there are the people who look at the eight legs of the giant purple octopus as a five plus a three. And they want to kill the ones who look at it as a three plus a five. And both of them want to kill the people who see it as two sets of four. And then there are the real way out Sufi followers who see it as an eight and a zero and everybody wants to kill them. And the more that death and mayhem and bloodshed is given to the giant purple octopus, the stronger it becomes. And it is a god. And that is my answer to your question, is that gods are things that humanity creates through focused intent. And that focused intent can be good and benign and full of compassion, or it can be rage-filled and devastating. And so when the followers of one of the newer gods on this land, for instance, baptized babies in its name before they dashed their heads out on rocks in South America, it became more powerful. When people are destroyed in its name, either over a long period of time because they are diminished because they're the wrong color or the wrong gender or the wrong sexuality, or because they are tied to a stake and burned in its name, it becomes more powerful. So gods are things that we create. And I think one of the biggest mistakes that we've made in the last 2000 years is when we allowed a god, first of all, to suggest that it was the only one, which is insane. And second, to conflate itself with what we might call the heart mind of the universe, which is the ground swell from which everything comes. And which is not made in our image. The thing about gods is that they are very like people because people make them. The thing about the heart mind of the universe is that it stands outside of time. Which isn't to say we can't connect to it and it doesn't say we shouldn't connect to it. Does that make sense? I suppose the terminology, I suspect you don't mean what, what people might take away from that, or, or perhaps you do, and so I'm going to just press on a little bit more. <laughs> okay. uh, the idea that, hu the idea that huma humanity creates the gods is, is awfully human-centric, and, and I suppose my immediate question is, creates them out of what? And so I'm going to, I'm going to give you my answer to that question and see if there is, um, and see if it's a similar kind of thing that we're talking about, and I'm just using different okay. words. When I am asked that, I suppose inevitably I use more psychological language because it's the language that I grew up with and was trained in and also the kind of language which a surprising number of people understand. And so to me, there, there are energies in the world, in, in all of the different realities. And Jung would have called them archetypal energies. You know, they, they are energies which have the possibility, which represent a particular idea, a particular image. It's very difficult to put some of this into words. And then they kind of, these archetypal energies kind of get translated for a particular culture, for a particular people, for a particular place. And so just to use an example, the archetypal energy might be that of the old woman, um, the old woman of the world, you know, the the the. Mm -hmm. the mother goddess, if you like, who made and shaped the land. And in Ireland and Scotland, you would call her the Kaliach, the, the old woman who made and shaped the land in Gaelic culture. For some Native American people, she might be Grandmother Spider. That is the archetypal energy translated. But I believe that there is an energy there that exists independently of us. And so if you're saying, I guess, we shape 
our gods. I, I think I could live without a little bit more than we create them. Are we talking at, about something different here, do you think? Yes, a little. Mm. What do you know of Alexandra David Nail? She, she was no. a Victorian traveller. She was one of these, she was Anglo-French and she was one of these people who kind of donned her skirts and her stout boots and went off travelling, um, usually at the expense of everybody who had to carry everything for her. And she was a Buddhist and she went to Tibet. And in the process of learning some fairly esoteric Buddhism, she decided that it was possible, which it is, and sensible, which it isn't, to create a thought form of a jolly monk. So she focused and she focused and she created the thought form of the jolly monk that became so tangible that everyone else in her party could see it. And at which point it stopped being a fat and jolly monk and became slimmer by the day and considerably less jolly and began to do serious damage to the entire group to the point where they had to make a detour to find an abbot, a Buddhist abbot, a Tibetan abbot of sufficient standing and understanding that he could persuade the monk to leave. So undoubtedly the archetypes exist, I would say. Not all of them become gods. So this is, this is my contention, is that there's a very distinct difference between, there, there are infinite numbers of things in this reality and in the other reality, all of which have energy. Some of which we as late 20th century, early 21st century humans perceive as archetypes that may or may not have long history. And we may pick an archetype and layer onto it our projections. But for me, a god is a very specific thing to which humanity has given intent and energy. It may be that my dog has gods also, but they don't speak to me. The gods to which I can speak and which will answer and which can influence the world are very specific energies to which energy and intent has been given. And that I think the thing that makes that is really important for me is that we understand what hum, the power of human intent and that intent can be healing and it can be damaging and that it is possible to build up gods that have huge energy and huge potential and huge power but that are feasting essentially on blood and pain and then we have to decide whether we really want to have anything to do with that kind of God or whether we want to open ourselves to gods who have been built up through the discipline of human compassion, which is a completely different thing. Is that, is that beginning so, to make sense? The distinction makes sense. I'm not entirely sure that we're in quite as different a place as it might appear. But for clarity, are you suggesting then that the gods have no independent existence outside of... Not at all. Us? No, but, but no, no, that okay. was the point of the Jolly Monk story is that it's very easy for one human being to create something that has totally independent existence simply by the power of intent. But we create the, the gods. And it may be that we fasten on to energies that are already there, but it is also possible to create... That was the giant purple octopus thing was it's possible to create something purely out of our own need and projection and you know, half oxygen starved desperation. We can create gods out of nothing. We can also create gods out of something that is already there. But for me, yeah, what okay. makes a god a god, as opposed to simply an archetype, is that it interacts with humans at the level where humans provide it with focused intent, and it provides humanity with the things that we choose to ask for. And then the questions are, what do we ask for and what intent do we give? I think the, the transactional nature of relationship with gods is really important because we can interact with other spirits a lot. They're not all gods. Okay, so, so moving on a wee bit, focusing of intent is, is very much then a core part of your teaching. Uh, so I suppose you, you talk about an instruction manual, about, about being asked for an instruction manual by the readers of, of the Boudicca novels. So I'm curious about how you developed that and what it consists of. And I'm guessing that focusing of intent is, is a big part of it, as is dreaming. And also you talk a lot on your, um, in your various articles on your website about lucid dreaming. So can you tell us something about the practice? Yes, and intent. I, th I think it takes me 10 to 14 years to teach this. So intent is, I think human intent is our greatest gift and the thing that we squander most readily. And that learning how to focus intent cleanly and clearly with integrity 
is the core of what we do as shamanic practitioners. And how we do it is, uh, you know, there's a lot of different ways to do it. I teach dreaming because I find that it works. And so, so the features of dreaming. Dreaming can become intentful. It doesn't take a huge amount of practice for dreaming to become intentful, which is to say we can ask for help, we can ask questions, we can ask the things that we would ask in the standard core shamanic journey techniques. It is set apart from lucid dreaming. Lucid dreaming is becoming aware while we are asleep that we are dreaming, which is useful. But the question then is, what do we do with that awareness? And I worry that there's quite a push in some dreaming circles to, for everybody to become lucid. And the problem with lucid dreaming for me is that, yet again, my head mind takes over my dreaming. And then I may as well be journeying. Because what I want from my dreams is that my head mind is not taking over, that I'm coming from my heart mind. So I am more interested in people being able to hold an intentful question from the moment of sleep and hold a clear sense of self from the moment of sleep without necessarily standing in the dream going, okay, I'm dreaming. What am I going to make happen now? And so a lot of what we do is finding ways to ask for help while we hone the nighttime intent to be able to hold a clear sense of self from when we fall asleep to when we wake. On the basis, and this is another of my own provables, that, but my belief is that this is that every time we sleep, we're practicing for death. There will come a point where we lose awareness of our immediate surroundings and are not going to wake up. And at that point, I think, I would quite like to have a sense of self and to be able to walk through whatever is the journey to the next worlds or to the lands beyond life or whatever we choose to call them with a relatively uncluttered sense of self. I think one of the great, great catastrophes of the last 2000 years is that we've taken on board a spiritual system that is afraid of dying and that basically turns dying into a non-entity. We stop teaching people how to die where a lot of the indigenous peoples dying dying was an art and a skill that was taught very clearly and very openly. Um, and so part of what I would like to do is that I and my students are as prepared as we can be to walk clearly into death whenever it happens. Um, but obviously that's not the only reason for doing it. Does that answer your question? It does, yes. You will, you also say, uh, to come back to, or to stick with the, the question of working with dreams, you see dreams as a resource. Yeah, And I wondered if you could say a little bit more about that. What, what kind of resource? Okay, so in the teaching that I have and that I pass on, there are four types of dreams. There are predictive dreams, um, which are, once you've had a couple, they become very obvious. They have a particular texture. They're very lifelike. It's, it's relatively straightforward to go back into the dream and to look at anchors of time and place, you know, whether where was the sun and what direction was I facing or traveling or were there leaves on the trees or whatever. And predictive dreams are there in my belief to give us a warning of something that may be going to happen. So, so the clearest of the ones that I have had was uh, in the dream I am driving on the right hand side of the road, which is way weird because I don't drive in foreign countries exactly because I can't. And there are lorries on my left and there's a line of cars coming straight at me and I am about to cause a multi-car pileup, except that there's a field beyond black railings on my right and it's ploughed in a particular pattern and there is a particular set of big, big oak trees in it and I decide to pull off the road and I wake up as I am about to crash into one of the oak trees and die. And it was really clearly a predictive dream because it was very, very lifelike. So I went back into it, I checked what car was I driving, what was the time of year, what direction was I going, what was I wearing, all of those things. And I was fairly convinced that it was in Devon just because of the trees. So I was, and I go to Devon a lot to do dog training. So I was really careful driving along the road to Oakhampton for the next several years. And probably three or four years after I had the dream, I was in fact driving south in Hereford, south of where I live, heading to teach a healing course. Pulled out to pass some lorries, having completely forgotten the dream. The guy in front of me pulled out as well. He went a bit slowly. He pulled in in front of these two lorries. And as he pulled in, I saw the line of cars coming towards me. And there was that moment of, okay, this is the dream. I look to my right and there's barred railings. 
there's a great big ploughed meadow under the oak trees and there's the oak tree that I'm going to have to hit if I turn right. And the teaching that I have for this kind of dream is that the dream is there to show us the moment of decision and choice when we can change the outcome. It's not to say this is what's going to happen. It's to say this is what could happen, but you have agency and you can change this. And so I was in the blue car, not, I, had, I had a Citroen C3, it's basically a sewing machine on wheels, but I was in the blue one, not the silver one. <laughs> I had a little bit more in the, in the tank and I thought, okay, this is the moment of the dream. If I really put my foot down, I can get, I can get through the gap. And I absolutely, I went for it and I made it with about an inch either side. It was the single most terrifying event in my entire life, but I'm still here. And so, and that's the key thing about predictive dreams is they're not there to tell us that we're going to die or that bad things are going to happen. They're there to show us the moment of decision where we can make a decision at any way along the path to that, to avert it. So I think that's a tremendous resource. The next resource, so the next type of dream is, is therapeutic dreams. We've kind of gone into that. There's obviously, and, and you will know, there's the old adage of people in Jungian analysis have Jungian dreams and people in Adlerian analysis have Adlerian mm. dreams and people who do shamanic practice have shamanic dreams. We have the dreams that fit the worldview that we have but there are undoubtedly there's a lot of teaching in the therapeutic dreams of what are the archetypes of this dream what are the energies of this dream what are the feelings of this dream what are the textures of this dream and if i were to take this dream forward where would it take me and if what i am facing it particularly the, let me go into the dream with awareness that i'm dreaming and face the shadow inside and embrace it and see what happens. And obviously there's, a, there's huge, there's entire therapeutic practices based on that. The third type of dream are what I call magical dreams, shamanic dreams, teaching dreams in which I am aware that I am dreaming. I'm aware that I'm in a shamanic space and what comes is one of my teachers. And I have, it is absolutely incumbent on me to listen very, very, very carefully to what is said in those kinds of dreams because it's they don't come lightly and they don't come without reason and they don't come to piss us about. They come because we need to hear what they're saying. And the fourth type of dream, my teacher at the time called them pizza dreams, which are the ones that, you know, they just got everything layered on top. The pizza dreams are the ones, I think one of the issues of working with dreams is it's quite possible quite quickly to spend our entire waking life processing the dreams. And that's not what life is about. So there have to be, there's got to be the category that, okay, it was a really interesting dream, but I'm just going to let that one go because otherwise we get mad. But yes, the resources of dreams are huge. And to what extent then uh, in your own teaching and your own practice does journeying play a part or does it just not anymore at all? Yeah, it does. It's a great teaching tool. We, I use it a lot in, because it's a way of carrying everybody in. And you'll know, I, I guess you, you must drum circles. Once you can drum with clear intent, you know, it, it's an a really it's a safe good constructive way of helping people to engage with parts of themselves that they don't always engage with it's a really really useful teaching tool in my own actual practice i journey other than for teaching probably two or three times a year most but i dream every night you know, my, i i'm entering into my altar as a dream space every single night and it doesn't always happen um, you know there, there are nights when I'm just so dog tired that I probably get to the gateway before I fall asleep last night I'm aware of getting to the gateway I'm not aware of moving beyond it but that doesn't mean I'm not starting with that intent that's that's interesting we've talked and you and I have had a, an, an email exchange about this before but it might be a, just an interesting one for, for people who are listening who do have a practice of their own where we've talked about this concept of of other worlds underworlds upper worlds and so on uh, in my own practice in my own teaching which yeah 15 years on uh, sorry 18 years on uh, is something that I have only just begun begun to think about as well I tend to see it very much in in the in the way that the Irish the old Irish literature presents the other world to us, which is neither up nor down, but very much imminent in this one, entwined with it, and yet having very many different ways in, and and almost as if there are rooms, countries, entire countries in the other world. But to me, they're not. It, I find that the core shamanic concept of journeying up for mm. certain things and journeying down for other things is is a little bit difficult to to marry with that. So I'm kind of curious, just just how you approach that whole idea. 
I, I have a lot of issues with Kaurishamanic practice, uh, almost every aspect of it. I still, part of my intent when I teach foundation courses is that people are able to go from one of my foundation courses to other people's teaching and will understand what's going on, will not be completely lost, while acknowledging that quite a lot of what I do, they won't find elsewhere. And that's not, you know, mine is right or, or the other is wrong. It's just, you know, this is the nature of shamanic practice. We all follow the spirits that guide us. So I do teach lower world and upper world in the very first foundation courses so that people are familiar with the concept, but it is taught with the absolute coder that as far as I'm concerned, these are, it's a teaching model only, that we're separating them purely as a semantic difference and that actually everything is confluent, exactly as you said. Um, it's not that there's a geographic space of upness and downness and, and that some and you know there are people who teach lower world upper world one weekend and then they teach middle world which is basically the entire rest of reality on the following weekend and i think that's not only crazy it's actively dangerous but we the thing this is the thing about shamanic modern shamanic practice is it's this is either an incredibly powerful very useful, resourceful, spiritual practice that takes a lot of discipline and a lot of time, or it's something you can learn in the weekend, and then you don't need to learn it. And if it's something you can learn in the weekend, frankly, I don't think we should be bothering, because things you can learn in the weekend are, generally speaking, not that useful. And so, and I think that one of the things that we forget is that in indigenous cultures, even now, it's between 12 and 20 years training to be ready to be the tribal shaman and there was a point where i was offered a training by a central american medicine healer and he was very clear that if we passed those was the 12 years of training then that was it we were we were then he would consider that we were safe but but the pass rate was not very high and the way you knew if you passed was that you were still alive at the end of it um and so we forget that people died in the process of becoming the shaman and some people died in order to avoid becoming a shaman. It's not a trivial thing. And I don't think it's something that we in the West really can get to grips with because we don't live in a shamanic culture. And so I just think, I think the whole upper world, lower world thing is, it is a useful teaching tool provided everybody understands that it's only a teaching tool. It's, it's like being taught that atoms are like billiard balls and they kind of bounce off each other in the universe. And, and that, you know, O grade or O level, whatever it is now, GCSE um, physics. That's that's probably a useful model, provided everybody understands that you're heading towards string theory, and that at string theory, that's not how things happen. So I think it's the same with us. You can lower world and upper world are not unuseful, provided everybody understands that they're a model. They're not a map. I'm I'm interested in uh, what you think of the the view that most people. Um, that I come across who've done core shamanic practice seem to have, which is that the middle world or, or journeying, and we are talking about journeying, as you know, in, in core shamanic practice, that journeying in, in this world is A, dangerous and B, not very interesting. I found my own training, such as it was um, 18 years ago now, the most interesting thing that it enabled me to do, that that journeying practice, was to kind of journey to the heart of a tree or the heart of a stone or even the mind of a crow carefully. Uh, all of these things carefully and not to be blundered into and always with respect. But again, that sense that shamanic practice is, is about weaving ourselves back into the, the, the life of the world. It it seems to me that this is something that we must learn to do, that otherwise we have a tendency just to sit indoors and, um, as you say, make journeys up. I, I just wonder what your perspective on that is. I didn't know that the Kurishmanic people thought middle world was dangerous. I think middle world is dangerous. Up to, until, okay, so I think it depends where we're starting from. My understanding is, my my understanding, and again, this is where we hit belief systems, and and up to a point, all I'm interested in is my, I, I'm doing clicker training with the horses and the absolute rule of clicker training with horses is safety comes first. And my absolute rule, which you might practice is safety comes first. I've seen people die as a direct result, I believe, of doing things that were not safe. And perhaps they would have died anyway, who knows? But I'm very keen, if I'm teaching, then I'm very, very, very keen that I teach safe practice. So in the beginning, 
my understanding is that lower world, upper world, or whatever we like to call them, that we all each have what seems to function to me as our own training bubble. It's a bit like an indoor school when you go riding, for those who go riding. It doesn't mean that really exciting, inspiring things can't happen there, or that incredibly, apparently dangerous things can't happen there. But providing we stick to those, to our intent being upper world, lower world, our own training bubble, however we choose to call it, we are safe. Nothing that happens there, however frightening it may seem, is ever going to harm us, and it is happening for our own flourishing. It's brought to us by teachers, spirits, guides, gods, whatever we like to call them, whatever they are, that are there for our soul's greater growth. When we step out of that, all bets are off. And I think this is one of the other things. One of the things where I differ from the Course Humanic people is that I certainly heard Course Humanic people who seem to be of the opinion that everything in the universe is charming and lovely and fluffy and bunny rabbity and filled with compassion. And my absolute experience is that I have been so afraid that I thought I was going to die of fright. And I'm clearly I am still alive. And so I didn't die of fright. But that there are things out there that really don't like people. And there are things, Robert Moss says, I don't, I don't necessarily believe everything Robert Moss says, but he says, and I think rightly, that there are things that are there to woo or to wound. There are things that want us for something, and if they can't have us, they will try to damage us. And this may be projections of our own psyche. I don't care. What I care about is that my students are not damaged, and that I am not damaged. And so the analogy I use is that we need to learn to walk through the forest. And if there is a sign saying, beware, bears this way, do not go this way, we don't look at the sign and go, it's okay, my spirit animal is a bear, I love bears, and go blundering off into the forest. Because if there are bears, the bears may eat us. And that does not mean that the bears are being evil. They're just being bears. But we are still lunch. So I think a number of things arise from that. First is it's really important that we not start assigning good or evil to things that are just things, but that we also recognize that there are some things that, for possibly very good reasons, are not fond of humanity. There are other things that just eat stuff that needs, you know, that's wandering around, and that doing the equivalent of putting on a fluorescent bikini and then walking through Central Park at midnight is not an intelligent thing to do. And that it takes really in my experience, quite a lot of practice for people to let go of the projecting that we inevitably bring to this. The, I want the standing stone to love me because you know it's been there for three and a half thousand years and it's probably very ancient and very powerful and I've decided that it's my role to protect it, is bollocks and bullshit and we need to let go of it and we need to get to the point where we can just sit with the stone and let it teach us. But that takes a lot of time and a lot of shedding of stuff. And most people that come to this want it tomorrow. And tomorrow is not the right time for that. So I am quite encouraging of my students that they not leave the lower world and upper world until they've done enough of this work that they've let go of a lot of the projecting. Because I think not only might they be damaged, but they might do damage. You know, human intent is an incredibly powerful thing and it can be thrown around without us really understanding what we're doing. And that you know, 10, 15, 20 years down the line, we'll have a much better understanding of what we're doing. And then we can go and sit with the stone. So I think the middle world has the potential to be extraordinarily dangerous. I think it also, as you say, has the potential to be extraordinarily healing and amazing and wonderful. Does that make sense? It does. Interesting. I guess this question is not dissimilar to the question I asked you about who are the gods? Um, who, who are the teachers? Who are the guides and the spirits? Do we create them too? Possibly, but so we're still in the level of belief system. My experience is that once we live this, actually even before we leave this reality, that there exist entities that have energy, some of which are not only willing, but very happy to engage with us and to help us to heal ourselves and ultimately, if we want to be 
go that route to heal others. That's a long way down the line. But in the beginning, we're looking at healing ourselves because we are fairly broken. I have, I have a very brief anecdote. I, I studied for a little while with Elliot Cowan, who wrote Plant Spirit Medicine. And he tells mm-hmm. of, he was senior apprentice to Don Lupe, who was a Weichol medicine healer. And uh, all the Weichol, the young men and women, had gone off to be engineers and doctors and chemists and lawyers. And this white man, Elliot, was the one who wanted to learn the shamanic stuff. So there he was, being the senior apprentice. And he said Don Lupe used to boast to him, you know, late at night that he could heal anybody. And as far as Elliot was concerned, he'd seen the people who came to Don Lupe and, and pretty much Don Lupe could heal anybody. And then Elliot took Don Lupe to Los Angeles. And he said it was just like when he was a kid, Elliot used to watch Star Trek. And he used to imagine what it would be like bringing an alien to Earth. And he said bringing Don Lupe to Los Angeles was just like that. He left him in his hotel room with the light on. And the next morning, the light was still on because Don Lupe didn't know what a light switch was and he didn't know how to switch it off. And so he takes this man who's never been out of his village before and he takes him through Los Angeles. And by the end of the first morning, Don Lupe is clutching his arm saying, you have to take me back. I cannot heal any of these people and they are all damaged. And I think that touched me very profoundly. And I think, you know, first of all, we need not to take this as a value judgment, but I think we, because we live in a culture where damage is normal, we don't realize the level of heart wounding that our culture carries. And the shamanic practice for me is the way that we can heal, but we need to heal ourselves first. So the guides and the spirits and the gods for me, the definition of a god is something that humans have made. That's, that's what sets gods apart from other guides and spirits, is that the gods particularly have this specific transactional interaction where we give them intent, our own or other people's, depending on how we set things up. And the nature of that intent defines the nature of the god. And, and I, you know, I come at this looking at one of the gods that is most powerful in our world at the moment and looking at what has been fed to it the last 2000 years and thinking you know if you have a god the central thesis of whose worship is that a man is tortured to death it's not likely to be benign it doesn't mean it won't help its followers if it'll get more of what it wants but how could it be benign and so and i think it behoves us to be particularly careful of the transactional nature of the relationships with god but guides and spirits and we haven't touched on ancestors, but again, I counsel really great care with ancestors. It's one of my best and most beloved teachers said, just because you die doesn't mean you get to be wise. We need to be very, very careful that the recently dead have their own agendas and we don't always know what they are. But there are an infinite number of types of spirits, any one of whom might become a guide at any moment. And there are the ones that come in dreams. There are what we call the dream weavers. And there are the ones that inhabit or stay close to rocks and trees and mountains or, or other living things. And there are the ones that are just drifting through. And once we begin to interact with these, it's an incredibly complex, fertile, spectacular, puzzling, confusing, inspiring experience. And, and will take, I think, many, many, many lifetimes to begin to understand. The more that I do this, the more I realise how little of a clue I have got, but that doesn't stop it being exciting. Does that answer your question? <laughs> That's, it does. It does indeed. Are you ever going to write a book about this? Uh, that's a very interesting question. I'm, Tony, I'm out of contract for the first time in 22 years, and my God, it's liberating. So <laughs> um, I'm writing, I just wrote a new short story, a, a set in, in kind of a pre- Budokan. So it's it's the grandmother of the elder grandmother, um, which is free on my website for anyone who's interested. And the response to that is such that I'm now, as of yesterday, writing a longer fictional piece, also in the Budokan world. And I'm also, I've started a non-fiction about the dreaming, because, but it's it's finding, yeah, it's finding what I can say that isn't going to be read out of context. One of our, the people we know of as the Druids never wrote anything down. And I have, for the last 14 years, been very careful not to write down quite a lot of what I've done because I don't want people parsing the sentences and then 
doing what they think I have written. I want them to understand. And it's, language is a very tricksy thing. And the images in my head may not translate immediately to be the images in your head. I mean, already you and I have found places where we probably are talking about the same thing, but we might not be. And, and language is complicated and written language particularly lacks the nuance of taught language. So yes, I am writing this down, but I'm taking my time over it. So that would be, be a very wise thing. Yeah, <laughs> that sounds very exciting. Some of the worst books I think I've ever read in my life are How to Do Shamanism Properly. So um, I'm sure yours will not be like that, but um, absolutely. I shall send it to you. And if it is, and you say that it's one of the worst, I shall just, you know, this is a great thing about <laughs> digital books. You just put it in the trash and it's gone. gone. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Fi a final question, Manda. Uh, it's, it's something that, um, a question I suppose that is close to my own heart. Um, I was not a veterinary scientist like you, but I, I after an all arts background at school, I ended up studying psychology, which mm. was seriously perhaps one of the most rigorous scientific trainings that exists out there if it's done well, because all of it by definition is subjective. And so you have to be very, very careful, yeah. you know, what how, how you interpret that. So it was a very rigorous scientific training, and I think very damagingly rigorous mm. for, for many, many years. But I was left with, um, even though I, I gradually worked my way out of that, I was always left with a sense of, I suppose the best word for it is embarrassment in talking about this kind of work. I think probably, as I said, I started I started to work with, with shamanic practices probably about 18 years ago. And I'd say it's only in the past year that I'm actually comfortable talking to anybody about it. I don't really care anymore. I think it's because I'm yeah. And as Kathy Bates so famously said in Fried Green Tomatoes at the Whistle Stop Cafe, I have a lot more insurance these days. But it's still a little bit it's still a little bit tricky sometimes. And I'm kind of curious as to how you seem to seamlessly weave it into your writing and not just not just obviously for people who are reading the Boudicca books, but also for, for people who are reading your other books who perhaps, you know, where these ideas are not so overtly expressed. How do you how do you find that? Do you do you find people thinking you're mad? Oh, all the time. Yeah, in fact, it's in print. Um, Mary Beard wrote in one of her nonfiction books that that, that I was completely crazy. She, but that um, because I believe that the gods had fingered me to write Boudicca, but she did say at least the gods picked someone who could write, which I thought was quite sweet. Um, so but I, you can either care about that or you can not care. And I really, absolutely, genuinely do not give a fuck what other people think. It's of no interest to me at all. It never has been. You know, I in any part of my life and, and so and I, I would never evangelize but I'm also not ever going to not say what I do and why I do it and the thing is the people who even if they think I'm crazy you know I've got an agent that I adore and I've got editors who work with me and if I say to either of them I went and sat up a hill for a night and what I was told was to write this they let me write it and so, you know, that's, that's fine. I, I, that, it, it works. So they, because we're all crazy, frankly, you know, it's, you look at the world out there and, and try and identify for me anyone in Western culture who is not completely out of their tiny skulls. I'll be really impressed. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. No, I think I'll fail miserably in, uh, in that task. And, and, and I thought it was the last question. <laughs> And cheerfully, yes. <laughs> um, and I thought it was the last question, but you've just led me to, to another one, which I promise is the last. You also, I've seen somewhere, I think on your Dreaming Awake website, where you talk about journeying techniques as a help for, for, for creative work. I wonder if you just say something about yeah. that. Yeah, I've done a couple of workshops called Rewilding the Words, um, which largely really I set up because I had a number of, I set up something called the Historical Writers Association back in 2010. And so I, in the end, had lots of friends who were historical writers, all of whom kind of wanted to come on the shamanic courses, but didn't quite dare because they were going to end up meeting a lot of weird shamanic people. And so I held the Rewilding Words, which was basically my foundation workshop, but for writers so that they could come along and be with other writers and not have to think it was too weird. And I'm about, in fact, I'm 18th of March to 6th April, teaching down at Schumacher on um, something called changing the frame, which I hope we will incorporate some shamanic work, but very, very, very basic because I use it all the time. I, you know, at the times when I journey, it's journeying to ask for help with a book, almost always, because 
how else do you write, really? <laughs> so, and, and I think it's an incredibly useful resource, journeying and dreaming. But journeying is particularly for something like right. And I would never journey to ask to be told what the plot line is, but I would journey for help with finding the plot line or you know, whatever it is that I'm stuck on, the, the, the next bit or the texture or the tone or whatever it is that I feel in need of. Or just journey to ask for help to bring the book alive. I will, I will journey for those things for sure. And I think it's a, you know, if you're going to write, why not use the resources that are there? Wonderful. Well, thank you very much for taking the time to to talk all this through. I'm sure it's going to be absolutely fascinating for the people that are listening to this podcast. And if you did enjoy our conversation, do please continue to follow our work at the Hedge School where you'll find free resources as well as paid-for courses designed to offer practical guidance for living well, living authentically, connecting with our places, and finding a deep, embodied sense of belongingness to this beautiful, animate earth. It's about dreaming and it's about waking up. Above all, it's about dreaming ourselves awake. Our podcasts are brought to you thanks to the generosity of our Patreon supporters. And if you are able to support our work, and you can do so from as little as $1 a month, please do head over to patreon.com and search for The Hedge School. Or you can find a link on our website at www.thehedgeschool.org. So this is me, Sharon Blackie, signing off for now. Thanks so much for listening, and I hope you'll join us again next time.